What happens when the church starts to look like the culture? Yeah. So go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say, Jason is going to stomp on my toes today because it is going to be one of those. I've been asked by a few, they're like, why, why Titus? What, what, what took you to Titus? And I, you know, sometimes I, you have these great answers where you're like, well, these angelic lights were coming down and a burning bush was talking to me and I, I really had no choice. It wasn't the case on this one. We were kind of coming out of reach and I knew I wanted to just head into a Bible study. I knew I had about four weeks. So I looked at some of the other uh, books in the New Testament. I'm like, well, you know, how about Jude or First John would be cool. I looked at Philemon and I'm like, I don't think there's four weeks here. And, uh, but for whatever reason, I kept coming back to Titus and maybe that was the Lord just bringing me back to Titus. And as I thought about it, I'm like, well, I've read Titus before, but you know, I've never really dug into it. You know, there's, there's sometimes you read something and then there's sometimes you really read something. You dive in, you tear it apart. And as I thought about it, you know, growing up, I don't remember any pastors having any Bible studies on Titus. Um, okay, admittedly, I might have been asleep when they did, but, but you know, I just don't remember anyone talking through Titus. So I thought, well, let's dive in. Let's see if Titus has something to teach us. Let's see if we can learn something from it. And so that's what got us here. Now, anytime we dive into a passage of scripture or a book in the Bible, uh, we've talked about this before, but I just keep wanting to bring it up because this is so important in your personal uh, Bible time as well. And that there's, there's at least five questions we should ask anytime we dive into a new passage of Scripture. Those five questions are going to put them on here is, hey, who wrote it? Who's the author of this? Number two, who were they writing to? Who is the audience, right? Number three, why did they write it? I mean, was this just a historical account or was there a problem that they were dealing with? In particular, if there's a problem you're dealing with, number four, then how did the author address that to the audience? How did they engage that? And then number five is sometimes the most important. How do I take that and bring it or contextualize it today? I mean, if the Bible says, hey, don't go steal somebody's camels, that doesn't necessarily apply today, right? But I bet I could make a good case on not stealing someone's car. You know what I mean? So it's a matter of how do we take it from thousands of years and bring it into modern times. So let's do that with the book of Titus and see what we discover. Number one, who wrote it? Well, there's no need to uh, really guess here. He introduces himself in verse one, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus. Now, what we don't know, and we learn from other documents, is that he's writing this from Nicopolis, which is in Greece. He had just been released from prison, and it was his second time being arrested. It's around 63 AD, so what we know from history is Paul was nearing the end of his life. He would be arrested sometime in the next couple of years, and he would be killed by the Emperor Nero uh, during his time. So this is a mature Paul nearing the end of his ministry and his life, talking to a church and the pastor of that church. Well, who was he writing it to then? Well, when we get to verse 4, we find out. He says to Titus, my true son of common faith. So then we have to back up and we have to say, okay, what do we know about Titus? And the answer is not a ton, but there are some things we know. He is mentioned by Paul in other places. For instance, in Galatians chapter 2, he says, After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. And he continues later, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So we know that Titus is a Greek. Uh, We know that he went with Paul on his missionary journeys. We learn in 2 Corinthians, he says, as for Titus, 
He is my partner and co-worker among you. And as for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches to honor Christ. So Paul held Titus to high esteem. Good chance, you know, Pastor Ben last week talked about Timothy being a protege of uh, Paul, and he was. Good chance Titus probably was the same. He was probably trained by Paul, learned from Paul, and was released by Paul into ministry. Paul, in fact, would go on and mention him at least four other times in his letters. So it was somebody well-known to Paul. Now, what do we know about Paul is that Paul was a church planter. He was an evangelist, and he used to go into places that had never heard the gospel before. He would tell them the gospel. He would help people be converts and make new Christians. He would build a church up, and then he would hand that church over to a pastor and then go and do it again somewhere else. That was kind of Paul's MO. He, he was a church planter, so he'd go in, he'd get some work done, then he'd leave it for a pastor to continue the work. Titus is who Paul left in Crete. He went there, he shared the gospel, started a church, and he assigned Titus that church in Crete. Now, why is Paul writing back to Titus then? Well, in verse 5, we find out. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what had been left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. So he left them there to do the work, the administration, systems, processes, all the things that need to be done for a church to plant roots and make the long haul. He was to appoint leaders. Today, we took two and we appointed and commissioned two leaders. Next week, we're going to talk even further, you guys, about uh, his expectations for leaders and what he thinks of them, even beyond what we talked about today. So hang on, you may want to resign sooner than you think uh, on this whole deal. But we'll talk even more about what the requirements are for leaders in the church next week. But he sends him in, like any other pastor, to develop and build the church up so that it can endure through the good times and the bad and make the long haul. What else is Timothy called to do? When we back up a couple verses, uh, not Timothy, Titus, sorry, what else is Titus called to do? We back up a couple verses in Titus, and Paul explains what he does as a pastor, but in explaining what his responsibilities are and what he does as a pastor, he is telling Titus the same thing. These are your responsibilities as a pastor. These are your responsibilities as leaders. What is it that Paul tells him? He says, well, my job is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, interesting thing he says here, who does not lie, we'll get back to that in a minute, promised before the beginning of time. So what are the responsibilities of leaders? What is any pastor's task and his leaders? Well, the first one we see right there in the verse, it is to further the faith of God's people. It's your first fill-in for today, and I encourage you to write those down if you could. It's to further the faith of God's people. Now, we talked about faith many weeks ago, and what we explained is that faith is more than just head knowledge. Oftentimes, people are like, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he existed. I believe he was a guy 2,000 years ago, and I believe some of his teachings. No, that's not faith. Faith is more than just the head knowledge. What we discovered, and we used the illustration of a three-legged stool, 
And what we know about three-legged stools is if you take any one of those legs off the stool, it can't stand on its own. So every single one of those legs need each other. And there are three key components to faith that all build off of each other and are as important as each other and that are essential components to our understanding of what faith is. And the first one is, yes, we must acknowledge. We must have the head exercise. We must acknowledge that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our King. We must acknowledge that God raised him from the dead on the third day. There is a component of that that says, I believe these things. So there is, yes, the head exercise, but we can't stop there. The next component is we must trust. We must trust him in all things. That means in the good times and the bad, in the easy situations and the difficult situations, we are called to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. So it must make its way from our head down to our heart, but it doesn't stop there either. And the third component is action. It must result, it goes to our hands, it must result in action. In fact, uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, would tell us faith without works is what? It's dead. So our faith must go from our head to our hearts and out from our hands. It's all things ultimately asking the question, who has my allegiance? Is it God or is it the world? The second thing he tells us in that verse is that we exist to help grow, help people grow in their knowledge of truth. Now, truth is kind of a funny word in our culture today, isn't it? I mean, after all, what's truth for me may not be truth for you. I, it's not right for me to impose my truth upon your truth, right? Besides, is there even a such thing as truth to begin with? At the core of the truth question is another question that I often ask people when I sit down and talk to them, and, and I have yet to find anyone that really loves this question, but it's a necessary one. What's your standard? In other words, when you look at me and say, this is right, this is wrong, this is moral, this is ethical, what was your measuring stick? What was your lighthouse to determine this is right, this is wrong, this is moral and ethical. And, and, and can I just be transparent as possible? Here's the reason people don't like that question if we're all just being really, really honest with each other. Because most of us, if we're being honest, have to answer it this way. I am truth. In other words, I determine what's right and wrong, ethical and moral. And, and, and whether we like it or not, we're still all sitting in the garden with a piece of fruit saying, I know what better to do with this piece of fruit than God does. I will be the master of my own domain. I will determine right and wrong, aren't we? It's the sin of the garden. We all are still playing God. And yet, he's calling Titus and saying, Help them grow in their knowledge of truth. Where do we find that truth? We find that truth in the Bible. This is our guidebook for life. It is truth. But it was just as quiet in Pleasant Hill as it is here when I say that. And the reason I know that is because the recent report came out said that only about 6% of Christians believe that the Bible is the standard for life. It has gone abysmally down. What's the third thing? Well, he says to teach them the hope that we have in eternal life. What is that hope? 
That hope is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven, set free, and reconnected back to God. That's good news, amen? Amen. amen. You were better at that than they were. They're like, amen. Uh, <laughs> good grief, go get a cup of coffee. We're to share the good news that you can have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Because let me share with you the bad news. Jesus is coming back. Now, it's good news for those who are believers, but it's bad news for those who are far from him. Because when he comes back this time, he's coming in judgment, and he's bringing wrath. You don't want that. But the great hope that we hold on to is for those who believe that, that Jesus Christ is their Savior and their King, they can hold firmly to the truth that they will not face judgment. They will be set free from the condemnation of sin. That's the great hope we hold on to. And that is what we must preach to the world. Now, while Titus is primarily who he's writing the letter to, he's not the only person Paul's writing the letter to because when Paul writes to the pastor, he's writing to the church. Now, what do we know about the church in Crete? And what do we know about Cretans in general in the first century? Well, remember a minute ago we read in a verse and I said, we'll come back to something. What did it say in that verse? It says, in the key verse it says, God who does not lie. Now, that is not how Paul normally opens up his letters and introduces himself. It was, there were some similarities otherwise, but he, he, he slips that line in there. He says, God who does not lie. And we need to ask, why? Because Paul doesn't do things by accident. Well, we don't need to beat around the bush here. Cretans in the first century were flat out known as liars. They were just known as liars. And how do you know that? We'll go down to verse 12 in Titus 1. It says, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. And I'm well aware this would not make it past the PC church today, right? I mean, this wouldn't do well with political correctness, but can I let you just know something about Paul? He didn't really care what the culture thought, and he kind of just told it the way it was. That's kind of just how Paul was. Cretans were known, not just in the Bible, but outside the Bible. They were notorious as liars. In fact, what you learn is it was a pirate culture, as an island, they had many harbors, and they were in a strategic location in the Mediterranean to control trade. They were pirates. And when they weren't pirates, a large population of the island were mercenaries, hired soldiers. In fact, they were known to be some of the best archers in the world at the time. And as a result of this culture, their cities were unsafe, they were violent, and they were full of sexual corruption. Honestly, though, I mean, like the best comparison I can make, and, and if you're only, you might only know this comparison if you're familiar with some pirate movies out there. If you've seen any of the last 20, you're like Pirates of the Caribbean or Blackbeard or something like that. There was always this one port they referred to in Jamaica that they'd go back to, and it was an evil place with debauchery, and that's where they always find the other bad pirates and, 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 and do bad pirate things. I don't know what they do there. You know what I mean? But, but, but it's always mentioned, and that, that place was Port Royale. And it sunk into the ocean about uh, 200 years later. But in the 16th, 17th century, it was known as the pirate hangout. It is not a place you and I would have wanted to be. That was Crete in the first century. It was a bad place. So why is Paul then writing this letter to them? Well, here's the problem ultimately. Over time, the churches in Crete came under the corrupt leadership of some of these people who were acting like the world instead of acting like Christ. 
And you find Paul writing a letter back to them to try to get a course correction. I want to be clear with something before we march forward, because maybe you're new to this Christian journey or just checking out Christianity, and if you are, cool. It is not a set of rules. It's not a set of guidelines you follow to get God off your back and to make Him happy. Christianity at its core is a transformed life out of a heart of repentance. And when we are transformed, we become more like Jesus. And as we become more like Jesus, the Bible says we produce fruit in keeping with His Spirit. It's not about following rules. It's about being born again. And when we produce the fruits of the Spirit because of our transformed life, that becomes a living, breathing witness in the world around us through our actions they see Jesus. That's what we have to be clear about. How you live your life and what you do is a living witness to others of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And the problem is, is that the church in Crete was acting like the culture, and as a result, it diminished their gospel. They weren't living it. And so let me ask you the difficult question. When people see you, the conversations you have, the things you do throughout the week, do they see Jesus or do they see the world? Which one is it? Let me ask an even harder question. What happens when you claim to know God, but your actions deny Him? And so let me get even more in trouble. Because this applies to Radiant Church as well. We have to hold the line on many social issues out there, particularly issues dealing with marriage and sexual immorality. And I get the argument. Please don't come use this argument with me. I get it too much already. Isn't it all about love? Come on, pastor. Isn't that what Jesus was all about? He just, wasn't his message love? Didn't he say love God, love each other? Isn't that, it? Isn't that what we can summarize it with? And let me just ask you something. I'm with friends. Which love are you talking about? Because the Greeks had four words for it. Which one are you referring to? We are called to agape love. And can I please be clear on something? We will not pursue difficult issues with overly simplistic answers. We just won't. Christians are called to agape love, and I would kindly remind us of what Jesus said about that love in John 14, 15. If you love, if you agape me, keep my what? Obey. If you love me, keep my commands. Jesus demonstrated a new kind of love when he introduced agape love. It was a truly sacrificial, 
submissive love demonstrated on a cross when he laid down his life for us to obey the will and way of God. And you are called to exercise that same kind of love in the world. He did not call us to Eros. He did not call us to Philia. He did not call us to Storge. He called us to agape love. It is the love of God. And it is different than the love of the world. It is unloving to encourage someone to live an ungodly life. It is unloving to lead someone towards destruction. It is unloving to be apathetic to a rebellious lifestyle. It is unloving to lie to somebody about who they are, and it is unloving to reject your calling. Amen? Amen. Hear me. As a pastor, it is not my job to get on the world's page, and it's not my job always to get on your page either. And I know that can hurt, but just reason with me for a minute, okay? From the day you were born in America, most of you, you were taught to be a consumer. You were taught that organizations and companies exist to compete for your time, your attention, and your money. And all too often we take that understanding that we have been trained on, you've been marketed to your entire life. And we take that and we bring it into the church and then we get confused when the church opposes it. That's oftentimes what happens because people come to the church and they say, I'm shopping and I'm looking for that church that's going to tell me what I want to hear, it's going to believe what I believe in, it's it's going to tickle my ears, the Bible says. And Paul looked at Titus and he said, teach them the truth. Listen, if you're looking for a church today that only tells you what you want to hear, may I lovingly suggest that you need Radiant more than you think you need them. Because the church exists you to move away from worldly things and point you towards Jesus. We don't exist to tell you what you want to hear. We exist to tell you what you need to hear. Even when you don't want to hear it, but you need a church that's going to challenge you. If that's what you're looking for, welcome to Radiant. Here's my fear. I fear if Paul were alive today, he'd be writing this letter to Titus to a whole bunch of American churches. Because that church, you see, suffered from a a fancy word we like to use out there called syncretism. Syncretism is when you try to blend one culture with another culture. Or in Christian terms, it's when we try to blend cultural and the world's values with the way of Christ. And yes, I'll just go ahead and call the elephant out in the room. This is precisely what the United Methodist Church is walking through right now. Because a group of thousands of them have said, we refuse to allow the ways of the world into our church. We will stand on the word of God. Write these down. These are your next fill-ins, and I really want you to study these this week. Look them over. Core to the message of Jesus is a call to holiness. God says, be holy because I am holy. Holiness means you are set apart for God's purposes. You have been taken out of the world into his kingdom to accomplish his will and his way. It is defined by 
purity, 100% clean. Purity means that you are unblended. It doesn't mix. What I'm saying at the end is we are called to live godly lives. When you buy 100% orange juice, you do not expect to find gasoline in there. If I take a 100% glass of water and put two or three drops of arsenic in it, you should not drink it. It's poisonous. If I bake you some yummy, awesome, gooey chocolate chip cookies, but tell you before you eat it, by the way, I put a couple of pebbles of dog poop in there. You still going to eat those cookies? And some of you are like, that's absolutely disgusting, Jason, and you're absolutely right. But can we have a serious moment for just a second? I think we forget sometimes just how serious God takes a little bit of sin. I think we take it for granted. One of my favorite quotes is from a man named Tim who started Wellsprings of Freedom. He used to say this in different ways with different groups, and I always loved it. He said, if you want to get rid of the rats, you have to clear out the garbage. Titus was sent into this church in Crete to clear out the garbage, clean it up. And the truth is we must do the same at Radiant, and you must do the same in your life. So let me ask you one final question. Are there areas in your life that you have compromised the gospel? And in doing so, you diminished your witness. When people see you, do they see Jesus and the hope he brings? I pray that you do. And I think we may have something to learn from Titus after all. So hang on for week two. Let's pray.